we've listened to the Apostle Paul unburden his heart over the fact that so many of his fellow Israelites have rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. They've rejected him as their promised Messiah, and they have no knowledge of him as their Saviour and their Lord. That's verses 1 to 3 of chapter 9. And all of that, despite the place of great privilege in which they have been, verses 4 and 5. So does this mean that all of those Old Testament promises that were given to Israel through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joshua, David, have all of those promises somehow fallen apart and failed to materialize? Has the Word of God proved to be a sham? That's the question Paul anticipates being asked at the beginning of verse 6. Absolutely not, is his reply. Everything God has promised regarding Israel is all being fulfilled. The issue is you haven't properly understood the Word of God or those promises when they were given. The nation of Israel is not what God had in view when those promises were given. They are not all Israel who are of Israel. They are not all children simply because they have the blood of Abraham flowing through their veins. Now, of course, the nation of Israel did play a crucial part in God's plans and purposes and did so for the best part of 2,000 years. But God always had in view a people drawn from every tribe and tongue and nation. Just as we see him telling Abraham in the first book of the Bible and just as we see them worshipping before the throne of God in the last book of the Bible. Every tribe and tongue and nation we read in Revelation, worshipping before the Lamb. Verses 6 and 7, Paul tells us there are two Israels you need to be thinking about. Yes, there's the nation of Israel, but God has his true spiritual Israel. And then from verse 8, he shows us from the Old Testament that there were prominent figures from prominent families who, though being physical offspring, were not spiritual offspring. These are of God's true Israel, says Paul. Isaac, Jacob. But these others though born into the same families, Ishmael, Esau, these are not God's true Israel. Now, Ishmael isn't named in Romans, but every Israelite knew the story of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and Ishmael, as you find recorded in chapters 16 to 21 in Genesis. And we considered that briefly last week. Paul continues, these are the ones who God had in mind when he made his covenants in the Old Testament, when he gave his promises, Isaac, Jacob, they are the children of promise, 
but these others are not. These others God did not have in mind when he made his covenant and gave his promises. Ishmael, Esau. And of course, our minds, I'm sure like Paul's, when he first was grappling with these truths, were thinking to ourselves, how can this be? And what makes the difference between these two groups? Well, Paul says the answer is found in God himself in verse 11. His purpose according to election. And to elect is to choose. These are his elect, his chosen ones, and the others are not. God's electing love fell upon Jacob, verse 13, but it did not fall upon Esau. Now, says Paul, there was not something in Jacob which Esau lacked, which made God choose Jacob and love him. There was nothing, something, there wasn't something about Esau which left him outside of God's love. All of the reasons are to be found in God and in God alone, according to his purposes. And of course, many people, when first confronted with these truths, all have the same kind of reaction. But that just seems so unfair. What did Ishmael and Esau do to deserve to be treated like that? Why on earth would God behave like that? This electing son, for no obvious reason, well, at least a reason that's not obvious to us, but then that he's not electing others. Dare we even think that God is in the wrong to do such a thing? Well, I'm, I'm fairly sure Paul wrestled with all of these same kinds of questions, which is why he's able to anticipate what the questions will be as he teaches these things. And the next question he anticipates is at verse 14. God is not unrighteous, is he? That's the question. Is God unrighteous in doing these things? Well, again, Paul's re response is certainly not, by no means. Well, let's allow these five verses to instruct us about the nature of God's purposes in salvation and to see the righteousness of God in his electing grace. Well, point one of three. Paul's defense of election proves that this is what he's teaching. Verse 14. You see what he says. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. And he's defending the position that he's standing in. And he's defending with great authority these truths that he's just laid before us. And the fact that he's now defending his position so vehemently shows us that that really is what he's just said. 
That really is the truth. You might be thinking, we've clearly got this wrong about election. This isn't really what Paul is saying. We've misheard Paul on this issue. This isn't really what he's teaching. Well, if it isn't, why does he go to such great lengths to defend it and to support it? What he's going to show us is that if you look at this teaching of God's electing grace, the fact that he's chosen some and not others, if you look at that through the lens of fairness, if you look at that through the lens of uh, whether or not you think this is just, you're looking at it through the wrong lens. You need to be looking at it through the lens of mercy. It's God's mercy that explains it. And that's what Paul is going to show us. If people get what they deserve, if God only chooses people who deserve to be chosen, if he only rejects people who deserve to be rejected, then what Paul says back in verse 11 makes no sense whatsoever. Because there he teaches that it has absolutely nothing to do with anything that those two boys did. If it had been that Jacob had done this, but Esau has done that, well, he'd tell us. But that's not what he says. It's like the little cup that's given out every week on Fridays at BBB for the best boy or girl. That child is chosen this week because of this and that a worker is, is chosen uh, to choose the best boy or girl, and they would be able to justify uh, their, their choosing based upon what they've witnessed in that child. This is why the child has been chosen, because of this. But Paul says, no, that's not how it works with God in terms of his electing us. It's not on account of anything that anyone has done. That's not how it works. But the objections continue. But this is simply unjust of God to do this. But election has nothing to do with justice in that, in that way. If election is to do with justice, then really only one of two things can happen. If election is purely down to justice, God can only really adopt one of two positions. He can either deal with all of us as the sinners we are, and as because of the sins, as our sins deserve, or he can acquit all of us. But that's not what it's about. It's, it's not about justice in that sense, in terms of who God elects. Imagine a courtroom, and in that court there's a group of people who all together have all been charged with some criminality. They're all charged with the same crimes, and they're all in the dock together, en masse. And they're all found guilty, and all of them are issued with the same sentence. Fair enough, you say. In terms of justice, justice has been done. 
what could happen, alternatively, is that the judge decides that there were some mitigating circumstances that really do need to be taken into account. And because of those mitigating circumstances, actually, they can go. Because those mitigating circumstances in law acquit them. You say, okay, fair enough, they're, they're all, they've all gone. Justice is done. But, but here they are, they're guilty. And they've been found guilty and they've been sentenced as guilty. And then the judge, apparently arbitrarily, splits that group into two. And says, okay, you stay over there, but you, you come on this side over here. And so these two, these who are guilty are split into two. And these, he lets them go free. And these, well, they have to carry out the sentence that's been applied. Well, that would seem rather unfair, wouldn't it? There'd be an uproar. Well, yes, there would. But isn't that what Paul is teaching here? Isn't that what Paul is saying God has done? And isn't that indefensible that God would do such a thing? that these who are guilty can just walk out free simply because the judge has decided? How? how can that be fair? How can that be just? You're viewing it through the wrong lens. It's about mercy. What if the judge introduces into the courtroom his own son, and his son comes and stands in the place of those who are being set free. And he passes the sentence onto his own son. And the judge watches with tear-filled eyes as his own son is taken away with the others to serve the sentence of the guilty. Well, for one thing, there will be a hush descending on that courtroom as everyone struggles to understand what it is they've just seen. Well, what would they have just seen? Well, justice has been served. The guilty have been dealt with. Justice is no longer the issue. But what about those people who've just been saved from the punishment that they deserved? What about those against whom their crimes were committed? So there's someone in the courtroom and the crimes of these people have been committed against that person. And that person sees these people serving the sentence they deserve, but these people going free. How's that person going to feel? about fairness or justice. Well, ordinarily, we would think, well, yeah. The person against whom these crimes have been committed, surely they would be thinking, justice has not been done. 
There's nothing fair about this. But there's one very important detail that's been completely overlooked so far, and it's this. The crimes of which these people are guilty have actually been committed against the judge and his son. The crimes have been committed against the judge and his son. That changes everything. The judge, as a father, has exchanged his son for them that they might go free? Yes. The son, even though the crimes were against him, has willingly taken their place, taken their judgment, taken their sentence upon him? Yes. And all of a sudden, you see, the judge is choosing them to be saved on account of his son. It's no longer an issue of justice. It's an issue of mercy. It's an issue of mercy. They all deserve the punishment that is due to them. But I have chosen that not all of them need to go there. And I've chosen some for whom my own son will stand in their place that they might go free. And as the judge, and as the one against whom all of these crimes have been committed, I choose to show them mercy. If you're a Christian, that's you. God in His grace has chosen to show you mercy. Why would the judge do that? Mercy. It's what Paul emphasizes in those verses as we read them. Why would the Son do that? Grace. And so the voices cry out, God is being unjust and unrighteous in election, isn't he? But suddenly, once you start to view it through the proper lens, through the lens of mercy and through the lens of grace, once you begin to understand what's actually going on here, everything changes. And this is the gospel, that the father exchanged his own son for some of the guilty, that they may go free. And he did so purely on account of his own mercy and grace and for his own purposes. And that's what God has done. And that's what Paul is explaining to us here. And Paul understands, and this is what he's teaching. This is the truth that he lays down before you. And he will defend this truth to his very last breath. God's electing of sinners for salvation. 
has nothing to do with fairness or justice or the lack of it. God's electing of sinners for salvation is all about his mercy and his grace and his compassion. And so that's the second point to hold on to and to grasp firmly from verses 15 and 16, that God's election is all about his mercy and his compassion. I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy and compassion on whomever I will have compassion. None of them deserve it. Not in the least. But that is the Father's heart. And let me ask you a question. How many unsaved people have you spoken to who have moaned and complained and berated God because he has allowed them to continue living their own way? How many complaints have you had from unconverted people? Oh, God allows me to continue in my sin. Isn't he an awful God? Anyone heard that kind of complaint from an unconverted man or woman? Because I haven't. Now, they may be happy to, to point to certain circumstances as a reason to blame God and to find, goal, find fault with God and as a reason not to believe. But how many unsaved people have you spoken to who are lamenting the fact that God has not caused them to repent of their sins? Do you know anyone like that? And yes, they may hear of this doctrine of election and they might find it sounds in their ears wicked and pernicious. But how many unconverted people do you know who wish, who wish beyond wish that, that they, could, they could hand over everything to God and give everything to God? How many unconverted people do you know who want to do that? How many unconverted people who have you heard say, isn't God a terrible monster that he hasn't called me to abandon everything and follow Christ? How many unconverted people speak that way? Sinners are happy in their sin. Sinners are happy to stay there. That's what the first two and a half chapters of Romans is all about. When God moves to save... It's all because he has moved to save out of his mercy and out of his grace and out of his compassion. Those whom God does not save have no desire to be saved. They're quite happy in their sin. Those whom he does not save will receive from him perfect justice for their sins. They will one day receive from him what their sins deserve. Sins which they've committed willfully and gladly and out of the sinful, willful heart that's within them, which is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, says Jeremiah. It's out of the heart of all of us that proceed all of the things which defile us before God, Jesus tells us, that God should choose to save anyone is a remarkable thing and is only on account of his infinite mercy and compassion. 
And if you read through verse 16, if you know your Bible, you know it has some quite strong echoes of John chapter 1, verse 13. It's not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. There is nothing about us or within us or of us which brings us to salvation. Either it is all of God or we have nothing. In our sinful, unsaved state, there is nothing at all within ourselves or about ourselves that stirs up something within us that makes us want to be saved. What did Paul say in chapter 3 at verse 11 and 18? There are none who understand, there are none who seek after God, and there is no fear of God before their eyes. And so, to go back to verse 16, it is not of him who wills. It's not because you wanted salvation enough that God then responds to you in return. It's not a matter of trying to embrace a certain kind of attitude or taking yourself through a particular process of thought, believing that you can bring yourself to that moment or that place where you have made yourself to see and understand. It's not of him who runs. It's not of anything that you've done. Nothing whatsoever. Now, of course, the gospel does present certain statements of truth which must be believed. And there is a degree of logical progression in the truths of the gospel. That's, that's true. But whilst they may be understood with the intellect, something far more than that is required. To do you any good, to take any effect within you, they must be spiritually discerned and received by faith. That's something which only God can, can put within you through the enabling of his Holy Spirit. It's not of him who wills or who runs. It's of God who shows mercy. It's all about mercy. God's electing grace is all tied up in the mercy of God. That's what Paul is focusing our eyes upon here. He explains these things through these Old Testament characters who he brings to our attention in those earlier verses. If anyone had run for salvation, it was Paul as a Pharisee. No one had run like him. He was, the, he was the greatest runner of his day in terms of being a Pharisee. I'm sure all of these things which Paul is putting before us now had been very humbling lessons at one time for Saul of Tarsus and still are for Paul the Apostle. It's all of mercy. How does a man like Saul of Tarsus ever get saved other than being visited by God in his infinite grace and mercy? How on earth does a man like Saul of Tarsus ever get saved if God has not first chosen him and called him as we see happen on the Damascus Road? How's a man like Paul ever going to get saved unless that is the heart of God toward him? And if that is not the purpose of God for that man, and it's exactly the same for you and me and for any other Christian you may care to name. Because God abounds in mercy and grace and compassion towards sinners. And he has mercy upon whom he wills. 
God's mercy actually flies in the face of justice and fairness in so many ways. And he comes to sinners and brings us precisely what we do not deserve. His not choosing some should not be the thing that you get all caught up about. It's the fact that he chooses anyone that should stagger you. Your reaction cannot be, that's not fair. It has to be, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus. Wonder how he could love me, a sinner, condemned, unclean. And in preaching the gospel to you, we bring to you the God and Saviour who is so wonderful because he will not treat you as your sins deserve in Christ Jesus. He's filled with compassion for the lost. That was the message about Christ this morning. And he, he extends to elect sinners mercy, great mercy. And so we, we conclude by remembering this, that God is sovereign in his mercy and in his compassion. 7 and 18 talks about Pharaoh in the Old Testament and concludes with this simple but profound statement, God has mercy on whom he wills and whom he wills he hardens. And to bring that point home, Paul takes us back to that time when the Israelites were in captivity in Egypt. And that, of course, is the most solemn section of Israel's history. It resulted in the de their deliverance, and of course that whole period, and their deliverance out of Egypt and into the Promised Land, that is something that the Lord's people continue to remember with deep reverence and thankfulness and worship to God. Remember Pharaoh, the Egyptian king, says Paul, well, how could they forget? Pharaoh was as much a part of God's plan as Moses was. God raised up Pharaoh as one who was not of his elect, but he had a place in God's purposes. And through him, God would fulfill all that he willed to do, even through a pagan Egyptian king. What was God's purpose? Well, God was going to demonstrate his sovereign power and glory he was going to do it through Pharaoh. But he was going to do it by hardening Pharaoh's heart against him. He did it through those ten plagues. God brought sovereign power and glory to himself by releasing his people from captivity. And by means of that, he caused his name to be glorified through all the earth. What a reputation the God of Israel had after that event. And Pharaoh had his part and his place in it and was appointed by God in that place. What, even an unsaved pagan king? Yeah, even him. Pharaoh wanted nothing to do with the God of Israel. And we read in Exodus that both God, Pharaoh'd, uh, God hardened Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh hardened his own heart against God. When it came to mercy, God passed over Pharaoh. 
But that was not an unjust or unfair thing to do because wicked and sinful Pharaoh deserved the judgment which God brought against him in his sins. God passed over Pharaoh when it came to mercy. Yet still Pharaoh was used by God in fulfilling his purposes. And that wasn't unjust or unfair. Because God is the sovereign Lord over all things. God actively chooses some. He actively does not choose the rest. Verse 18. But it has nothing to do with being unfair. We dare not lay at God's feet the charge of unrighteousness. We need to change the lens through which we view these things so that we see it in view of God's mercy and grace upon undeserving sinners. Who do we think we are that we might dare to pit our wisdom and understanding against that of God? The Pharaoh, whose heart God hardened, was already hard-hearted towards God, who moved in divine and righteous justice against him. And in God's righteous dealing with sin, God brings glory to himself. There was nothing that God did to Pharaoh that Pharaoh did not deserve. And all of us are sinners and deserve exactly the same. The wonder of it all is this, that this sovereign God has shown me, has shown you mercy. That's what should stagger you. Of his sovereign electing grace, and for no other reason than that it pleased him to do it. He chose you to be saved according to the abundance of his mercy. Truths which are hard to swallow? Well, yes, we must admit to that. But truths without which there would be no gospel. And without which God would have no true spiritual Israel. And within which you could never have a part or a place. But you may. Because God is gracious and kind and merciful to sinners. And so here we are, a debtor to mercy alone and of covenant mercy we sing. We praise God that we are the objects of divine, eternal mercy and grace.